We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design, and it is Saturday, October... Oh, no, I have last week's date up. What is today's date? October 17th. 17th. Saturday, October 17th is where we are at. Thank you for tuning in to your local grassroots radio station. On Evidence of Design, we critique income and wealth inequality. We investigate the causes and examine the effects of rampant income and wealth inequality in our society, borne out by, we believe, unregulated free market. We believe the government should take a more active and stronger and proactive role in our lives. We believe the government, and thereby the people, should have more power as opposed to corporations and the free market. We believe that people's lives matter more than money. Thank you for tuning in. You can give us a call throughout today's show by dialing in at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. Again, I'm your host, Jason Taylor, and in the studio, we are joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Sup? And Mary Lawrence. Good morning. On today's episode, we will primarily feature the dark cloud that is hanging over the confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Comey Barrett. She is the uh, third (laughs) potential Supreme Court justice that will be appointed under the Trump administration. We are not going to talk about Amy Comey Barrett's record. We're not going to talk too much about the hearings. We're mainly going to talk about sort of the context surrounding the Supreme Court at this moment. We're going to go over a brief history of uh, recent cases by the Supreme Court that do not get a lot of media attention. A lot of what's in the news now is, will Amy Comey Barrett overturn Roe versus Wade? Will she restrict, you know, gay rights in the Obergefell case? Will she overturn the Affordable Care Act? I think... uh, You know, those are all very, very important issues, but what's given less attention are the other cases that the Supreme Court takes up, the vast, vast, vast majority of cases that uh, they have restricted the power of workers and minorities over the past several decades. We're going to look at examples of that and argue that the Supreme Court, you know, we should be giving also uh, more attention to the Supreme Court's power uh, to restrict the rights and, well, power of poor minority folks. The Supreme Court over and over again has been siding with corporations over workers for the past several decades. So we'll be going over the dark cloud over the Supreme Court now, but first, as we always do, we're going to begin with an account of the local COVID-19 figures, and then we're going to end with voting. We'll go over where you can vote, how you can vote, so on and so forth, because this is the most important election in our lifetimes. 
easily so. Mary, do you want to begin with the COVID-19 facts and figures? It would be my pleasure. And by pleasure, it would mean I'm about to be really depressed as usual. (laughs) But let's get started. So just to give, as I like to do, a, a context and then narrow from there, the worldwide cases uh, total, again, this is always back from January to current, and these numbers are from Worldometer, which you can find just by Googling Worldometer. Um, the worldwide cases are at just over 39 million currently. That includes just under 9 million active cases and uh, over 1 million that have resulted in death. In the United States, we still have the highest caseload of about 8.3 million cases. However, we're no longer leading by a huge margin. India has uh, about 7.5 million cases currently. In the United States, the death toll is still over 220,000. So it's a good idea to keep being careful, keep wearing a mask. And in New York State directly, you may be aware that travelers to New York are required to go through a 14-day quarantine from many, many states in the uni- in the United States. Uh, this week, Governor Cuomo added three states to that list to bring it up to 38 total states from which people have to have a 14-day quarantine upon arrival in New York. The new states added to the list are Michigan, Excuse me, Michigan, Virginia, and Ohio. Moving a little bit more locally, according to a New York Times study, and this is good news, Monroe County has the second lowest rate of COVID-19 cases in the country for communities with more than 500,000 people. Yay! Yeah, there was one county in Oregon that had a better rate, um, but that's good news. However, that's awesome news. However, it is not does not mean that we have complete control in Monroe County. It just means that so far things seem to be going fairly well. And certainly there are other details that, you know, weren't mentioned in that study or weren't mentioned um, publicly, like the level, you know, how many people are living together at a time, things like that. So there are probably a lot of factors into that, but it's good news. Yeah, we've we've handled this virus, um, I think, fairly well. And when I say we handle, I mean, that can be unpacked for a long way. You know, it could just sort of be luck that we haven't had a lot of sort of positive cases here. It could be that our uh, local public health officials, political leaders, institutions have created good policies that have helped to mitigate COVID-19. It could be that we as citizens have done a good job of social distancing and mask wearing. You know, it, it could be a, a sort of a confluence of factors. Regardless, um, you know, we have been doing fairly well in Monroe County. Again, more than 200 people have died locally, I believe. But uh, I we think s- over 300 now. Yeah, but we still have to kind of keep on keeping on. And it's it's good to hear that good news. It is. But with it in mind, again, um, cases are actually rising in, in Monroe County. There were 52 new cases on Thursday. Uh, Public Health Commissioner Dr. Michael Mendoza did attribute some of the rising cases to greater surveillance and higher testing. Again, we are aware that students are going back to school. A lot of those schools are in person and schools are taking more steps to make sure that, you know, people are safe and following protocol. So the combination of people coming back into bigger settings together in person and 
higher surveillance has has resulted in more cases of COVID-19 locally. Um, if this is something that you want to be watching on your own, um, Adam Bellow, the county executive, and uh, Michael Mendoza will be continuing to offer regular updates as to the county's status. This past Thursday was the first in an expected series of virtual updates. Um, so that is something that you can keep track of yourself. Uh, in this most recent briefing, they did remind residents to continue to be mindful of how they come into contact with other people, how often, how many people. And there was a big reminder to get a flu vaccine to avoid overwhelming hospital space as we're approaching flu season. Mary, did you get a flu vaccine? I did. Matt, did you get a flu vaccine? Yeah. I did too. Wow, look at that. It's good to get a flu vaccine. I think it helps. Well, the Still, I main yeah, the main argument right now is we don't want flu cases and COVID-19 mm. cases in the hospital together. And if you happen to get the flu, then it's more likely that your COVID-19 symptoms will be much worse if you contract it at the same time. And just because I got a flu vaccine doesn't mean I'm ready to go jump into a flu volcano with a bunch of <laughs> flu-infected people to have a grand old time can you tell me COVID. where you'd find one of those flu volcanoes with uh... i'm just speaking hypothetically here it's called uh, the white house <laughs> no that's the covid volcano Jason. Yeah. <laughs> when, when the white house becomes a super spreader oh, that's the best oh man well Oop. so that's all for our covid19 updates today um you know we update every week with different information yeah, we we are going, we are approaching nationally is what appears to be uh, our next peak. You know, we went through our first peak, which was really driven by New York City. Uh, the second peak was kind of over the summer with more southern states. And now our kind of third peak appears to be in the Midwest. And so COVID-19 continues to run rampant. And the best thing we can do is continue to wear masks and practice social distancing. Just as a quick reminder, COVID-19 primarily spreads through the air, through respiratory droplets, and therefore the worst thing one can do is be in a confined space without a mask in close proximity to other people. Just because you are six feet apart from someone doesn't necessarily matter. It's more important to have proper ventilation and wear a mask to prevent respiratory droplets from spreading. I just, would say just avoid in tight, tight spaces with other people as often as you can. Correct. And, and always wear a mask. Yes. Um... And so we will continue to uh, bring m more updates about COVID-19 every week. And Mary, just a quick plug, you know, you mentioned that uh, to get updates, Adam, uh, County Executive Adam Bello and Michael Mendoza will be offering those regular updates. Uh, where else can people go to find more information about COVID-19? Well, you can go to the MonroeCounty.gov page. There is uh, there's a website dedicated to Monroe County updates, and Rochester Regional Health also has a good resource with up-to-date information in the area. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So we're going to take a short break on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. As a reminder, you can give us a call at 585-219-8888. After the break, we're going to go into the feature for today's episode, and that is talking about the dark cloud that is hanging over the Supreme Court hearings for Amy Comey Barrett. We're going to talk about how the history of the Supreme Court recently has been to uh, promote corporate power and special interest power over power for poor people, minorities, and, well, really, the common folk. So we'll be right back on 100.9 FM WXIR. Hang on. Mystery by Wipers. 
and this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Did anyone catch those competing town hall debates this week between President Trump and Vice President Joe Biden? How they were supposed to be the second debate, <laughs> the second presidential debate. Until and it, Trump caught COVID. And refused to have a virtual debate with Joe Biden because yeah. he was, you know, still potentially infectious at the time of the debate. <laughs> and because the strategy seems to be to just talk over people. Wait, was his reasoning that he didn't want to infect Biden? Or no, was not I, at all. I was going to say, that seems a little too thoughtful for our president. I mean, by all accounts, Trump is pro-infection, given his, his record. He, I mean, you know, literally his policy seems to be pro-infection. So, no, no, Trump had zero consideration, at least publicly, to... to infecting Joe Biden. No, he didn't want to participate in the vir- in the virtual presidential debate with Joe Biden because he just didn't agree to the terms and conditions, which is a, um, a fancy way of saying I just don't feel like it and I would not find it politically expedient for me. And so instead, uh, we as Americans got two competing town halls from the presidents at different networks on the same time, which I think is an amazing metaphor for our politically polarized world that we're in. Yeah, it's like you can just choose to tune into whichever so-called facts you find more convenient to you. Whatever reality you want. Yeah. Like if you're a Trumpist, great. Turn on ABC and watch Trump. If you, you know, if you're if 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 you're pro Biden, then great. Turn on and watch Joe Biden, and don't have to consider, you know, other points of view. It's just, um, I just found that a brilliant metaphor to where we're at politically, where we can't even get the candidates for president to be. It's not even a metaphor; it's real life. Yeah, no, it's, it's correct. Yeah, it's 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 actual it's actual our lives now. Just tune into whatever world you want to tune into, and you know, we'll go from there, and we'll we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Um, so putting, putting my snarkiness aside, uh, aside you know, we're, we're not going to talk about that. Um, is anyone still an undecided voter? I don't know, but you can let us know by 585-219-8889. We are instead going to talk about the Supreme Court uh, hearings that have been going on to nominate uh, Amy, Amy Coney, Coney Barrett to the bench. Uh, this is Trump's third appointee to the Supreme Court. There are nine justices on the Supreme Court. So in the past four years, Trump has effectively gotten to appoint one-third of the Supreme Court. He's also gotten to effectively appoint one-third of all federal judges over the past four years. And these judges and justices serve for life. And so one-third of the highest ranks of our justice system are Trump appointees serving for life. And, of course, Donald Trump is a president who won with a minority of the vote. Not so great. That is part of the dark cloud that we will talk about. I do not believe it is worth going over Amy Coney Barrett's voting record or getting into the nitty-gritty details of her confirmation. Why is because I view her as an illegitimate appointee anyways. The Republican hypocrisy on this is jaw-dropping. We've already covered it in past weeks, but uh, Lindsay, just to have one example, and we could have 10 examples, just for one example, Lindsey Graham, the senator who is on the Senate Justice Committee, who is leading uh, the Judiciary Committee, who's leading these hearings for Amy Comey Barrett, said multiple times on record, and we've played the clips before, that we should not appoint a Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. 
Lindsey Graham is leading the charge now to do what he said on record that no one should do. Of course, in 2016 with Merrick Garland, the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, infamously failed to do its constitutionally mandated duties to take up a nomination by Joe Biden that was uh, 10 months before the election. And here we have with Amy Comey Barrett less than two months before the election. Uh, Indeed, she would be appointed to the bench less than two weeks before the election. It's just all hypocritical and why I do not think it's fit to even go into her record because she should be seen as an illegitimate justice. Anyways, let's talk about the larger context about the illegitimacy surrounding the Supreme Court. And I want to do that, in fact, by playing um, a lengthy clip from Sheldon Whitehouse. He's one. He's the junior senator, a Democratic senator from Rhode Island. He brought up, uh, I think, several very important points around this dark cloud context of the Supreme Court. He talks, as we'll hear, about how the Supreme Court has been influenced by special interests and dark money for a long time, and how the Supreme Court has been presiding over cases more and more that benefit corporate interests, special interests, and minority interests over the interests of poor people, over people of color, and the majority of Americans. So this clip is around seven minutes long. Again, it's taken uh, seven minutes out of a a 30-minute speech by Sheldon Whitehouse during the confirmation hearings for Amy Comey Barrett this week. Let's hear what Sheldon Whitehouse has to say on 100.9 FM WXIR. What's behind us is now 80 cases, Mr. Chairman, 80 cases under Chief Justice Roberts that have these characteristics. One, they were decided five to four by a bare majority. Two, the five to four majority was partisan in the sense that not one Democratic appointee joined the five. I refer to that group as the Roberts Five. It changes a little bit, as with Justice Scalia's death, for instance. But there's been a steady Roberts Five that has delivered now 80 of these decisions. And the last characteristic of them is that there is an identifiable Republican donor interest in those cases. And in every single case, that donor interest won. It was an 80 to zero, five to four partisan route, ransacking. And it's important to look at where those cases went because they're not about big public issues like getting rid of the Affordable Care Act, undoing Roe versus Wade, and undoing same-sex marriage. They're about power. And if you look at those 80 decisions, they fall into four categories over and over and over again. One, unlimited and dark money in politics. Citizens United is the famous one, but it's continued since with McCutcheon, and we've got one coming up now. Always the five, four, unlimited money in politics, never protecting against dark money in politics, despite the fact that they said it was going to be transparent. And who wins? when you allow unlimited dark money in politics, a very small group, the ones who have unlimited money to spend and a motive to spend it in politics. They win, everybody else loses. And if you're looking at who might be behind this, let's talk about people with unlimited money to spend and a motive to do it. 
We'll see how that goes. Next, knock the civil jury down. Whittle it down to a nub. The civil jury was in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, in our darn Declaration of Independence. But it's annoying to big corporate powers because you can swagger your way as a big corporate power through Congress. You can go and tell the president you put money into to elect what to do. He'll put your stooges at the EPA. It's all great until you get to the civil jury because they have an obligation, as you know, Judge Barrett, they have an obligation under the law to be fair to both parties, irrespective of their size. You can't bribe them. You're not allowed to. It's a crime to tamper with the jury. It's standard practice to tamper with Congress. And they make decisions based on the law. If you're used to being the boss and swaggering your way around the political side, you don't want to be answerable before a jury. And so one after another, these 85 to 4 decisions have knocked down, whittled away at the civil jury, a great American institution. Third, first was unlimited dark money. Second was demean and diminish the civil jury. Third is weaken regulatory agencies. A lot of this money, I'm convinced, is polluter money. The Coke Industries is a polluter. The fossil fuel industry is a polluter. Who else would be putting buckets of money into this and wanting to hide who they are behind donors' trust or other schemes? And what if, if you're a big polluter, what do you want? You want weak regulatory agencies. You want ones that you can box up and run over to Congress and get your friends to fix things for you in Congress. Over and over and over again, these decisions are targeted at regulatory agencies to weaken their independence and weaken their strength. And if you're a big polluter, a weak regulatory agency is your idea of a good day. And the last thing is in politics, in voting. Why on earth the court made the decision a factual decision, not something appellate courts are ordinarily supposed to make, as I understand it, Judge Barrett, the factual decision that nobody needed to worry about minority voters in preclearance states being discriminated against or that legislators would try to knock back their ability to vote. These five made that finding in Shelby County against bipartisan legislation from both houses of Congress, hugely passed on no factual record. They just decided that that was a problem that was over on no record with no basis because it got them to the result that we then saw. What followed? State after state after state passed voter suppression laws. One so badly targeting African Americans that the two courts said it was surgically, surgically tailored to get after minority voters. And gerrymandering, the other great control. Bulk gerrymandering, where you go into a state like the Red Map Project did in Ohio and Pennsylvania, and you pack Democrats so tightly into a few districts that all the others become Republican-majority districts. And in those states, you send a delegation to Congress that has a huge majority of Republican members, like 13 to 5, as I recall, in a state where the five, the, the party of the five, actually won the popular vote. You've sent a delegation to Congress that is out of step 
with the popular vote of that state. And court after court figured out how to solve that. And the Supreme Court said, nope, five to four again. Nope, we're not going to take an interest in that question. In all these areas where it's about political power for big special interests and people who want to fund campaigns and people who want to get their way through politics without actually showing up, doing it behind donors' trust and other groups, doing it through these schemes, over and over and over again, you see the same thing. Eighty decisions, Judge Barrett. Eighty decisions, an eighty to zero sweep. We've been listening to Sheldon Whitehouse. He's going to, we're going to fast forward from his speech and listen to how he ends during the Senate confirmation hearings. Something is not right around the court. And dark money has a lot to do with it. Special interests have a lot to do with it. Donors trust and whoever's hiding behind donors trust has a lot to do with it. And the Bradley Foundation orchestrating its Emmy key over at the court has a lot to do with it. That was Sheldon Whitehouse, Democratic Senator from Rhode Island during this week's hearings to nominate Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Sheldon Whitehouse, instead of asking Justice Barrett questions, chose to use his time. He did a half an hour speech on dark money, special interests, influencing the Supreme Court to pass or basically effectively rule or not rule on cases that grant greater power to Republicans, right-wing causes, corporate interests, and etc. Sheldon Whitehouse started out that speech by saying, look, so much of the coverage on the Supreme Court tends to be these hot-button issues. Roe versus Wade, abortion rights. Obergefell, gay marriage, the Affordable Care Act, et cetera, et cetera. Those are really important, and those are hot-button issues, and those deserve to get attention. Um, but he says, you know, what's being missed here is how the Supreme Court, and a lot of these more innocuous cases, less reported upon and discussed cases, have been deciding again and again and again in a five-to-four partisan split in favor of special interests, right-wing corporate decisions. That five-to-four split, of course, is in reference to uh, what the Supreme Court has effectively been shaped like in the past, you know, 15 years or so, where there's five justices who skew conservative and four justices who skew liberal. And because you need a majority of votes on the Supreme Court for something to be decided, uh, if you get five votes, something is decided, and therefore that five-to-four split uh, Sheldon Whitehouse says has been seen 80 times in the past 15 years of uh, Chief Justice Roberts's tenure as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in favor of the special dark moneyed interests, corporate interests, right wing conservative interests. 80 times, five to four partisan split. Do you know about how many cases have been seen by the Supreme Court in that time by any chance? Uh, I used to know. I don't know off the top of my head. We've covered the Supreme Court extensively in past episodes. The Supreme Court grants what's called certiorari to um, cases every year. The Supreme Court mm-hmm. decides what cases to hear. Yeah, I'm just curious about the p- percentage of cases that they're seeing that do right. have this um, this split. Yeah. And so, you know, when, why it's worth bringing up that the Supreme Court 
decides what cases to hear is because that is a form of power. And the Supreme Court mm-hmm. deciding to hear one case, if they know they have the five to four majority, can effectively ensure that thing gets passed if they want to. Or the Supreme Court can effectively say, no, we don't want to rule on something. We don't want to take it up. And therefore, you know, they're preventing that from getting heard in the Supreme Court. And therefore, the lower court's ruling will stand. And so, you know, that is a form of power that the Supreme Court has. Uh, and so, you know, over and over again, the Supreme Court has been trending towards special interests. Now, Sheldon Whitehouse mentions things like Donors Trust, the Bradley Foundation, Americans for Prosperity, the Federalist Society. We won't cover these things in detail, but uh, they are essentially right-wing interests, think tanks, uh, foundations that funnel money for right-wing groups. Justices, uh, all Republic, you know, all Republican justices for federal branches of the Supreme Court have to be approved by the Federalist Society, which is a, it's not voted on by the people. We're having, you know, the Federalist Society is this nonprofit organization that vets judges to see if they are conservative enough. And so Republicans have decided to only take up justices approved by the Federalist Society. Again, this society is run by wealthy millionaires, billionaires, conservatives who are not elected officials. And so Republicans are essentially giving power to these special interest groups to decide who our next justices will be. And of course, Republicans are happy to vote them in. And in fact, many Republicans are part of that society themselves or came from it. And so our justice system has been being reshaped, especially over Trump's presidency, because they, you know, there's been great reporting on this, especially with Mitch McConnell, whose number one goal during the Trump presidency has been to approve as many judges and justices as possible to our judiciary system. Again, President Donald Trump, a president elected with the minority of the vote, has effectively appointed one third of all federal judges and what will be one third of all Supreme Court justices. By the way, all of those people again serve for life. Should we say real quick that a, a great deal of why Mitch McConnell seems to take such an interest in confirming so many justices is because of the increasingly gridlocked nature of the legislative branch of government and that Mitch McConnell's sort of strategy has been to stall or outright block democratically sponsored bills, laws, and uh, at the same time, to confirm more and more conservative justices who increasingly uh, rule on and shape our society. Yeah, the I think that's true, Matt. So Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader. He's one half of the you know the Senate is one half of our legislative branch. The legislative branch has the most sort of uh, provisions in it in the Constitution, so it oversees most of the things. Uh, you know that has to do with our country and finding out how things are supposed to be done. But the legislative branch has effectively been weakened year after year. Uh, and now the legislative branch is just completely just messed up. You know, what does Congress do? Congress has like a less than 10% approval rating every year. Um, our Congress is, is really broken fundamentally. So it's partisan gridlock and Mitch McConnell is the, has been the architect of breaking Congress. He refuses to take up legislation, uh, even if it's in the majority of people support it. He refuses to take it up. 
and he uh, punts issues to the courts in order for the courts to rule on things. You know, he says, well, I'm not going to let the legislative branch do anything. Let's have the courts decide it because the courts I know are in our interests because I'm the one, we're the one who've approved most of the justices in the courts now in the, in, during the past 10 year. So we've been ceding legislative power, i.e. democratic power in the favor of appointed judges who serve for life. And, and, you know, so we've seen the judicial branch gain power. We've seen the executive branch gain power at the expense of the legislative branch, which in theory is the most democratic of all the branches. And it's just further proof of the deterioration of our democracy. And, uh, if, if you care about the United States of America, if you care about democracy, it, it's hard to, it's hard to look at Mitch McConnell and say that that's someone who's helping out our country. Yeah, and this is one of those things where you look at the Trump administration and think when we're thinking about the lasting impact that the administration will have, I think this is arguably the largest impact that this presidency will make on our future with such a huge portion of new justices being approved, both in the Supreme Court and the lower courts. Um, I mean, these especially if the if the Senate or Congress in general continues to shove major decisions back onto the courts, these are going to be where our future is decided. Yes. So we were tuned into 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, and you're listening to Evidence of Design. We're talking about the dark cloud that hangs over the Supreme Court right now, in particular during the hearings for Justice Amy Comey Barrett. I want to, you know, and we heard a long clip from Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, who uh, gave a speech during Comey Barrett's confirmation hearings about this dark cloud, special interests, dark money in the Supreme Court. I want to talk about uh, six cases that people may not be aware of as an example of how the Supreme Court presides over things that have profound implications for our society. All of these six cases I will talk about have only been decided in the past 10 years. All of them have been decided 5-4 by a conservative majority, by a partisan split. All of these cases have been funded by right-wing special interest groups. The first case, of course, was in 2010 of Citizens United. That Citizens United is such a landmark case, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate. It fundamentally reshaped American politics by saying money is free speech. The First Amendment rights are essentially granted to corporate donations. So corporations can now give as much money as they want to any political cause they want, and they don't have to disclose the money they're giving. That has caused our elections to become more and more and more expensive every single year because more and more people are funneling money, pumping money into the election system. Yeah, Democrats do it too. Republicans were the architects of the system, though, and that shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have money in the way it is in politics, and Citizens United decided 5-4 by a conservative majority, a majority that knew that conservatives were the architects of the system through such institutions that Sheldon Whitehouse brought up, like Donors Trust, like the Branley Foundation, like the Koch brothers as Americans for Prosperity, granted corporations that power. Was this the same... Uh, the same case that sort of decided that corporations had the same rights as individual citizens, or was yes. that a different case? Yeah, it's the it's the corporations have free speech rights through money. Because they're people too. Yes, corporations are people too, which is um, 
Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, uh, it's absurd. Corporations are made up by people. <laughs> Corporations are not people. And, and money should not be compared to uh, free speech, at least to the extent that the Supreme Court has ruled. So, th- you know, there's one example. Citizens United, it's not about gay marriage. It's not about abortion rights. It's about money is free speech via corporations. The second case is so, so important, and we're seeing this right now. This is Shelby County versus Holder. This was decided in 2013. We've covered this on the show before. The Shelby County versus Holder, decided 5-4 by the partisan conservative majority, voted, essentially said that uh, southern states that have a history of restrictive voting. Uh, uh, voter suppression. Voter, yeah. The case basically said that um, southern states are free to pass whatever voting laws they want to do, and they no longer have to get federal what's called preclearance. They no have to. They no longer have to get federal approval to change their voting laws, which they'd had to do since 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed. States with a history of voter suppression had to get federal approval whenever they made any sort of changes to the way their elections were conducted. That was no longer the case, and I believe the reason why the judge side was well. There was no evidence of it having happened after the law was passed, which you might suggest, like, that's the reason why it didn't happen, because there was a law in place preventing it from happening. Right. And so, yeah, why do we have this law anymore? There's no reason to do it. Well, now that the Supreme Court effectively struck down that and states are given the green light now to pass whatever restrictive voting laws they want, we've seen that happen. States are now removing things states are making it harder to register to vote they're removing things like same day registration states are making it harder to vote by limiting the number of polling places states are making it harder to vote by uh, having more restrictive voter id laws we're seeing this over and over and over again so um if you if you even uh, if you so much as claim to care, to care about democracy voting should always be easier Rather than harder, it should always be accessible to as many people as possible. There's just no defending this and and claiming to care about the sort of values that we aspire to as a nation. Right. And there's articles every day about, you know, Texas restricting the number of ballot boxes to be one per county. There's articles right now in NPR, the lead article in NPR right now is that uh, there's long poll lines in Georgia in places where African-Americans are voting, you know, heavily African-American places because the Republican-led election officials and uh, political officials there have purposely restricted the number of places to vote uh, where there are lots of minorities. That is because of Shelby County versus Holder. Another Supreme Court case, Michigan versus the EPA. This was in 2015. The Supreme Court effectively ruled that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, before it issues regulations, so before it says, hey, hold on, we have to make sure that um, the air is cleaner, the water is cleaner, the land is cleaner, uh, et cetera, et cetera, before we can do any regulations, we must consider whether or not those regulations will have monetary costs for corporations. Guess what? When you do environmental regulation, it will most likely initially cost corporations money because corporations save money by destroying the environment. And so the uh, Supreme Court effectively hamstrung some of the EPA's regulatory power here by saying, nope, if your regulations cost corporations money, then we might, you might not allowed to do those regulations, which is an obscene idea because again, People that, that should be more important than money. That is the premise of our radio show. 
And for too long, too many corporations and people in power have valued money more than people. Another case, Janus versus the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees. That's AFSCME. We've covered this on episode 20 of this show. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that non-members of public sector unions do not have to pay union dues, even though they are benefiting from the union's collectively collective bargaining. We're not going to get into the weeds of this, but effectively weakened the strength of unions. Which I believe was already a lot weaker. Yeah, over the past 50 years, unions have been decimated by right-wing interests. Absolutely. And maybe just a good thing to mention is that collective bargaining usually means that when you are entering employment, you don't have to negotiate your salary by yourself. You don't have to negotiate your benefits by yourself, that there is a collective group doing that for you, which makes that much, much easier to do. Yeah, and it, and it's better because uh, it's it's factual to say that people who are members of unions tend to have higher salaries than non-union members for similar uh, positions and, you know, working areas. The private sector tends to be more... Uh, the private sector tends to skew towards higher salaries, but the public sector, you know, for similar positions to the private sector, tends to have higher wages for union representation. So unions benefit workers. That's the whole point of unions. But the Supreme Court does not side with workers. It tends to side with capital and corporations. Another case, this one is 2018. This is Epic Systems Corporation versus Lewis. We also covered this on the show before. Mary, this goes right to what you were bringing up in terms of collective bargaining. So the Supreme Court decided in Epic Systems Corporation versus Lewis that uh, employment contracts, so when you get a job and you sign off to say, yes, I'm working for this company, this is what I agreed to do. It says employment contracts can bar employees from collective action. This is huge because... What this essentially means is if you have a grievance to file with your employer, you cannot do it via collective action. The employer can make you give up that right. I mean, you have to bring individual arbitration against the employer. Obviously, your corporation has vastly more resources than you do. They have a much stronger legal team. They have unlimited money to funnel against you. You, as an individual, have to you know, find your own lawyer and have to bring it to court even if your colleagues have the same issue as you. All of you have to find your own lawyers, have the time, have the money to do that. You cannot file class action against your employer. That's what the Supreme Court said. And most recently, just as an example, last year in RUCO versus Common Cause 2019, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government has no role to take down partisan gerrymandering. It says, hey, partisan gerrymandering... It is what it is. Federal government has no role to fight against that. It's up to the states. When the states are the ones themselves doing the gerrymandering, the, legislati- the legislature in the states are the ones doing the gerrymandering, the Supreme Court says it's up to the states to figure that out. Well, the problem, Supreme Court, is that it's coming to you because the states aren't doing that. Hey, states. Regulate yourselves. Yep, regulate yourselves. Chill out. So in all those examples, we just went through six examples only in the past decade, all of which were decided five to four partisan split by a conservative majority funded by special interest groups to weaken the power of normal everyday Americans, particularly the poor and minorities, in favor of right-wing conservative corporate interests. Which we should say, weakening the power of everyday Americans is outright weakening our democracy. Absolutely. Yep. So, you know, Amy Comey Barrett, it's not just about Roe versus Wade. That is very important. It's not just about Roe versus Wade, though. 
It's not just about the Affordable Care Act. That is incredibly important. It's not just about that, though. It's not just about gay marriage. Uh, it's about everything. And wh- when the Supreme Court becomes six to three conservative majority, we're stuck with that, especially if Donald Trump wins again or anything else. So, you know, all I'm trying to say is if Donald Trump isn't president, he doesn't get three conservative justices on the Supreme Court, right? If he didn't win the election, he doesn't get three justices on the Supreme Court. Elections matter. Voting matters. And that is a great transition to the rest of our show, which is to talk about how we can vote. And just as a quick reminder before we do that, that we're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR, and you're listening to Evidence of Design. So before we get to local elections, there is a topic I'd like to discuss about California Um, So some of you may have heard that in the past several weeks, uh, there have been labeled ballot drop boxes getting set up around various locations in California counties, uh, including things like gun shops, shooting ranges, churches, and the Republican Party offices. And these labeled official drop boxes, or labeled as official drop boxes, I should specify because they are not official drop boxes, have been placed by Republican Party officials in areas that are advantageous for their own voters. Uh, The Attorney General Xavier Becerra and the Secretary of State Alex Padilla sent a cease and desist letter to the Republican Party officials demanding that they stop placing these boxes. That was just this past Monday. Uh, And this is a very hot topic right now in in California. So the Republicans are defending this practice. Um, There's a 2016 state law from California that has that allows a voter to designate any person to collect a completed ballot and return it to election officials. So a previous law uh, that was amended for this one limited ballot delivery to you. You could let a family member or someone living in your same household deliver your ballot for you. And that law explicitly prohibited collection by political parties and campaigns. Now, this law was amended, and that's the law that the GOP is using, that technically you're allowed to have a third party person deliver your ballot for you. And it doesn't specify that it can't be a political party and and campaign, which the previous thing did. However, this is uh, the issue here is that these boxes are designated official drop off box, um, but they haven't been sanctioned by election officials. So our question here is, you know, how do the voters know that these aren't official collection boxes and then what constitutes a legal ballot box? Um, there has been a lot of fighting between the Republicans and Democrats in California, but actually, as of yesterday, the state of California is allowing the, Demo- uh, the Republican Party to continue to place these ballot boxes as long as they follow certain restrictions. So these restrictions are the boxes will have to be attended to whenever the public has access to them. Um, the ballots will be secured and then delivered to election officials within the required 72-hour frame. And the party has pledged not to represent those boxes as official, so quote-unquote official. And they, they're saying that this was a, a mistake the first time and, you know, that, that they had misunderstood the previous regulation. Um, so this is something we should be wary of. The Republican Party, as, you know, we've mentioned in, in these past 
Supreme Court cases has historically supported voter disenfranchisement and legally doesn't often support legislation that would make it easier for people to vote. And here they are trying to make it easier for their voters to vote. And ultimately, I think, you know, putting ballot boxes and collection boxes in easy locations is a great idea. The problem is that they're only doing it where they find it advantageous for themselves, while at the same time, parties, different party affiliations around the country are making it more difficult for minority public populations to vote. Right. We, we mentioned that in Georgia, they're restricting the number of polling places. In other conservative states like Kansas and Kentucky, they're restricting the number of polling places. In Texas, they're restricting the number of ballot boxes to drop off ballots. I yeah. believe a judge ruled recently on the Texas case against Republicans trying to do, or against the governor trying to do that, rather. Okay. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that update. But the, the point of the fact is, yeah, I mean, Republicans say, oh, heck, we don't want people to vote because the more people who vote, the more Republicans lose. <laughs> if that's if that's your political strategy, uh that tells you a lot about what the party is. What do you want the less people to vote possible? Uh, that, that's all you need to know about the Republican Party is that is that the less people who vote, the better they do. That that is if you have to give an elevator speech about the Republican Party, it's it's that. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I think the Republican Party just needs to like take some time off, uh, reevaluate itself, go away for a few years. And <laughs> if it feels like it can behave after that, then maybe it can be allowed to back into our, our lives. But yeah, take some time for yourselves, guys. You know, figure some stuff out. <laughs> it's okay to take a break. Yeah, I just think that this is a, an important thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, the Republican Party is saying that Democrats are hypocritical by having changed this legislation in order to make it easier to get people to vote. And now, you know, the Democrats are mad because we're using this thing that makes it easier for people to vote. When, again, this should be easy. This should be an easy thing for everyone to do. We shouldn't have to fight to register. We shouldn't have to fight to cast our ballot. This is something that should be easy for every single voter who wants to vote for any party that they want. It should not be something that only... Republican voters are able to do. Yeah. And, and by the way, parties shouldn't be running how our elections go. Right? No, and they should not be the ones uh, collecting the right. ballots. And, and people right. should also be aware that mm. that's what's going on. So many people who have cast their ballots into these unofficial boxes did so under the with the understanding that they were official boxes and were intentionally misled by the party, which had not posted, you know, how often those things were going to, how often the ballots were going to be picked up, by whom, where they were going to be brought, where they were going to be held. Uh, and that is information that apparently they are now going to be doing. Hopefully that is true. Um, but, but those things do need to be made clear. Right. Well, let's give out good local information, Mary. Where can people vote locally? Yes. Yeah, so, Actually, this is focused specifically for early voting. Um, as hopefully you know by now, if you are registered to vote, you can vote on November 3rd in the general election. But for early voting, you are able to choose any site in the county where you are registered in, uh, so in Monroe County, you can choose to vote at an early voting center near work or school instead of near your house if you're, if you're, if that's easier for you. And, um, these, times are a week from today early voting starts a week 
from today. Yes. So Saturday, October 24th is the first day. Polling places will be open from 9 to 3. From then, you can vote every single day. So from the 24th through November 1st, uh, sites will be open most days 9 to 3. Um, and some days even longer. I won't read the specific times because we're running out of time. But these locations are, very briefly, the David F. Gant Community Center, the City of Rochester Recreation Bureau, the Genesee Valley Fieldhouse, the Edgerton Recreation Center, SUNY Empire State College, the Town of Chile Senior Center, North Greece Road Church of Christ, the Marketplace Mall specifies North Entrance, the Irondequoit Public Library, the Harris Whalen Park Lodge, the Parenton, Parenton Square Mall, and the Webster Recreation Center. So again, if you are registered to vote in Monroe County and you want to vote early, you can vote at any one of these locations. There are nine days for early voting at more than nine locations. We've already had opportunities to do absentee voting via the mail. And, of course, there's still in-person voting on November 3rd, the general election day. There are more opportunities than ever locally to vote. Why would one want to miss out on the opportunity to exercise their most fundamental democratic right, especially in as important an election year, and especially when voter turnout will be particularly high? Your friends are going to be doing it. Your family's going to be doing it. Why would you not do it? For more information, go to monroecounty.gov forward slash elections. And for more peer pressure on voting. Tune into Evidence of Design. And with that, we do have to end today's episode. Thank you for tuning in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can find our uh, episodes podcasted anywhere you find your podcasts. Wherever you find a podcast, Evidence of Design is there too. Stay in touch with us throughout the week at our email, radioeod at gmail.com. Or Facebook and Twitter handles at Radio EOD. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Wear a mask. And Mary Lawrence. Excited to vote. Until next time, be well, be safe, stay informed, and bye-bye.